Uh, today's reading is from Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 to 25. You'll find it on the screen in your bulletins in the church Bible, of which I believe there was one copy in the foyer, so you may have to toss for that. It's on page 785. Matthew 4, 17 to 25. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Well, good morning, everyone. For those who don't know me, my name's Ella Saxon. I'm one of the 9am congregation, and uh, occasionally I have the privilege of bringing God's word to you. It's fitted in well between Cameron having holidays and, as you know, Simon leaving last, last weekend. Over the last three weeks, we've been blessed by having Paul Harrington with us to bring us God's word from the book of Genesis and hearing how God would bless Abraham and all peoples on earth through him. Well, today we take a, a giant leap forward to the Gospel of Matthew and uh, we can see how giant a leap that is if we look at uh, the genealogy of Jesus from uh, chapter 1. We see there's 14 generations from, uh, from Abraham to David, another 14 to the exile into Babylon, and then a further 14 generations to the birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Uh, the Messiah, the man who threw the, the man whom through that blessing to Abraham would occur about 2,000 years after Abraham. And Romans 5.19 says, Through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. Before we start looking at today's reading, let us bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, speak to us today. Open our hearts, our minds to your word, so that we may clearly see what your will is for us. May we be re respond by being doers of that word in our personal lives and our greater environment so that people might see that we belong to Christ and be persuaded to seek him. Now to set the, or to set the scene for today's reading, we can look at chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, which read such... When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, 
So Jesus makes Capernaum, the largest fishing village in that area, his base of operations at his new hometown for, his length, for the length of his ministry in Galilee. Now we read in 4.17, the beginning of today's reading, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now the phrase from that time on indicates the beginning of something new. We observe from the first four chapters of Matthew that all the preparations for Jesus' ministry had been completed. The prophesied miraculous birth and infancy of the Messiah had taken place. His prophesied forerunner, John the Baptist, had announced Jesus' arrival. And Jesus had been anointed for ministry by the Holy Spirit and his identity confirmed by the Father at the time of his baptism. He had also established his authority of power as a son of God over Satan, as witnessed earlier in the book of Matthew when he was tempted in the wilderness. So from that time on, Jesus began to preach. Now you'd expect the first words that the Messiah, the Son of God, to preach, to say, would be profound, and they are. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In these words, there's an immediate realisation that the relationship between humankind and God is broken. And repentance should be the response in light of that kingdom, in light of that kingdom coming near. The, word also, the words also reveal Jesus' mission, calling people to confess their sin, repent of their sin, and turn to the living God. Repentance is not just feeling sorry for something we've done. It involves an active change of direction. Repentance is Jesus' message to all humankind and a summary of what he taught. They're the same words that John the Baptist had said in 3.2 and it emphasises what, uh, what Jesus is all about, saving people from their sin, the answer to their sin. And what he says expresses the necessity for repentance, the urgency of it, the importance of it. And it's just as urgent today, even though the kingdom of God has not yet been fully realised, it is coming, it is near. And it can mean danger as well as hope. The danger of judgement, the hope of forgiveness and eternal life. Jesus calls me, calls, Jesus' call means that if we're out of step with God, we're called to stop what we're doing and turn towards him, go towards God's kingdom, a kingdom of light, peace, healing and forgiveness. What Jesus is offering us is incredible. Consider again the words, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And if we jump to verses 23 and 25 of today's reading, we can see the evidence of that kingdom, the reality of it. The good news proclaimed, the diseased and sick healed, evil overcome. Jesus draws back the curtain and gives us a glimpse of that kingdom, a taste of it, 
And oh boy, if that's what it's like, who wouldn't want more? It's the beginning of the blessing promised by God to Abraham, way back in Genesis 12, 2 to 3, which we've heard Paul Harrington talk about over the last two or three weeks. God says to Abraham, I'll make you a great nation and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God has continually brought that blessing he promised to Abraham to fruition over the last 2,000 years, drawing to people to himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. And now with John's public ministry terminated by his arrest, Jesus the Messiah proceeds to the realm of deliverance, the realm of salvation, as prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. It's God's breaking into human history in the form of this one man, Jesus Christ. Now when Jesus begins to preach, he began to gather disciples, who would first be hearers and afterwards preachers and doers of his doctrine, his ways, his words, who'd be witnesses of his miracles and later testify them. And it's a it's a summary of the response that Jesus wanted from those who sign up to follow him. That's where we meet him in today's reading. Let's read it again. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Jesus' call clearly points to a lasting association. It's not a stroll on the beach that he's inviting them to, but discipleship. Mike Rater, who was here recently, said Jesus was saying, take me at my word and come, take me at what I say and go. Jesus is asking for love, obedience and a reverent fear of the Lord. Verse 21 continues. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Their response was wholehearted. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew left at once. And James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John left immediately. Now, if you're like me, over the years I've, I've wondered to myself, why did they do that? Why, sh why would they do that? Had Jesus spoken to them, or God spoken to them in a dream? Were they expecting Jesus? Did Jesus have some hypnotic power over them? All legitimate questions. But the answer lies in the fact that all four brothers had had a previous long-term relationship with Jesus. Andrew was one of the two disciples of John who had left him to become a disciple of Jesus. And he immediately had brought his brother Peter to Jesus. 
And if you're taking notes, you'll find that in 1 John, uh, sorry, not 1 John, John 1, 35 to 42. Commentators also believe it's most likely that Andrew, Peter and John, perhaps James, were the disciples that accompanied Jesus to the wedding at Cana where they witnessed water being turned into wine and believed in him. From John 2, 1 to 2. Now nowhere are we told why they had returned to fishing. But by the time Jesus meets them in Galilee, almost a year later, they had had plenty of time to consider Jesus and his mission. They knew enough about Jesus to realise that his call was not to be taken lightly. They were probably longing to be called, so it's no wonder they responded immediately. It's decisive action that they take. It wasn't an emotional spur-of-the-moment decision. So we shouldn't be surprised that they respond in the way they do. They want to be with Jesus again, learn from him, imitate him, minister with him, be his apprentices. When I was born again, I knew with certainty that the God I half-heartedly believed in was well and truly real. I was aware of being in his presence. And I knew in the twinkling of an eye that my sins had been forgiven me. I felt clean, overflowing with incredible joy. And in the days, the weeks following, it was as, as if Jesus took me up above the earth and showed me how futile, how meaningless this life was. I knew there was a better place, a place of peace and joy and glory. And if Jesus had said to me at that time, come follow me, come and join me, I would have gladly done so. Perhaps the disciples had glimpsed eternity, tasted the glory of heaven. They probably knew exactly what they were getting themselves into. Now Jesus not only said, come follow me, but added, and I'll make you fishers of people. Now we've come to know what that means, taking the gospel out to, to uh, others who haven't heard of Christ, making them aware of their need for repentance. But the disciples of that time wouldn't have had any idea what Jesus was talking about. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it best when he says this, it is no longer a question of taking fish from the lake, but of drawing people up out of the abyss of sin and death, catching them in the great net of God. Paints a wonderful picture, doesn't it? Now, not knowing didn't, didn't deter the disciples in any way. They had faith in Christ. They were determined to follow him. They trusted in him, even though they didn't under, fully understand the role he had in store for them. They'd not only learn from him, but bring others into contact with the living God. Now, the call and the promise that Jesus makes, I'll send you out to fish for people, is applicable to followers of Jesus, applicable to you and me just as much today as it was to those first disciples. Now, when we hear that, do we have any objections? It wouldn't be unusual. We might say, now hold on a minute. 
That's just for the super-Christians, the evangelists, those with specific gifts. Surely it's not for everyone, not for me. Well, the most common term in scripture for a follower of Jesus is disciple, not Christian. And there's only one level of believer. We're all his disciples. But again, we might raise further objections. I'm not good enough. I haven't got a degree in theology. I haven't been to Bible college. I don't know much about scripture. I haven't got the gift of the gab. I don't want to be seen as a rebel, a Jesus freak. I, prob I possibly, how could I possibly take the gospel to others and tell them about Jesus? Well, rest assured, we're not being beaten over the head to go and do that, forced to do it. But we'll look at that a bit later, why we should do it. Now, in choosing Peter, Andrew, James and John to follow him, Jesus again surprises, again does the opposite to the norm at that time. For example, religious students chose their mentors and not vice versa. And here Jesus chose four who were not scholars, not pursuing a career in ministry or rabbinical training. All were working class people, fishermen, who would have expected to be doing that for the rest of their lives. Acts 4.13 would later describe them as such. They were unschooled, ordinary men. What does that mean for us? Do we need that degree in theology? Obviously not. Listen to what Paul says of us in 1 Corinthians 1.26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the, think, the, th the weak things of this world to shame the strong. And God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Praise be to God. God can use us for his own good purpose. God's ways, as we've just heard, are not always what humans expect. God will give us everything we need, has given us everything we need. We have scripture and we have the Holy Spirit, not only to give us the words to say, but to embolden us. And as I wrote this, I thought of how God had quietly, has quietly led me, never against my will, I might add, from being a person who, for example, detested meetings, who have avoided speaking within groups at all costs, most of all in a public forum, an introvert, perhaps, by preaching his word here today. And if God can do that with someone like me, then I'm convinced he can do it with anyone and everyone. Some of you may remember Reg Piper, who was here several years ago. And Reg would stress that if you can say that Jesus Christ 
came as predicted by the Old Testament prophets, was born, lived as a man, died and rose again, then you can spread the good news of the gospel as well as anyone. And just over a month ago, Mike Rader encouraged us all to let the world out there know how good it is in here. We can be fishers of people just as effectively as those first disciples were. There's nothing that Jesus asks us to do that he, we, that he hasn't already done for us. He came fishing for us. He reached out and drew us to follow him. Is it too much to ask that we might put him above our families, our friends, our work, our all, to share the good news with those around us? When the disciples were called, we read in the passage that they left their nets, they left the boat, and they left their father. Significant things, for they represent the family business, their livelihood, their assets, their family. It would have had a dramatic effect on family relationships, responsibilities and obligations. But it appears that they didn't take any of that into account. They left immediately. Their priority was Christ and Christ alone. And that should be comforting and encouraging to those amongst us who pay a price for following Jesus, perhaps in the form of conflict and opposition from perhaps spouses, family members, friends, others. Know your priority in Christ is well-founded. Press on. Never let your faith be shaken. Never give up. Now, God doesn't want us to up and leave our spouse or children. That's not what's happening here. The call to discipleship clearly meant a separation from the life they had been living, but it didn't mean they had to sell everything and cut every earthly tie. Rather, Jesus had become their first priority in life. They now had a higher allegiance. Later in the Gospel, even though Peter says... We have left everything to follow you. We see that earlier, Peter, in 8, 14 to 15, Peter uses his home as a base for Jesus' ministry, in a home in which his mother and mother-in-law live. He hasn't run off and left them without support. Now, we might argue that we're too busy to do God's work, Goodness me, what with work and family and sport and shopping, etc., and I need time for relaxation. How could I possibly have time for anything else? Well, we can serve God right where we are, right where he has placed us. We can serve in situ, that is, in our original environment, our existing environment. That can be our mission field. Now then, the question needs to be asked, why would we commit ourselves to be fishers of people? Why would we do it? Why would we want to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, from today's reading, several important points underscore the significance of Matthew's account of Jesus' first public ministry, and they're related. We begin to see the answers to those questions. Firstly, the focus is on Jesus and the kingdom of heaven, which he has announced. 
the calling of the disciples highlights Jesus' authority. When he calls, people obey. Because Jesus is the spirit-anointed son of God, the only response is to obey. Following Jesus is not optional. He doesn't want half of us. He wants all of us. It's a straight-out command. We sign up to follow Jesus because he tells us to. The second point is closely related. The two overlap. That is, Jesus is inviting workers to join him in the kingdom mission. A mission which we've determined, we have determined from the phrase, I'll send you out to fish for people. And although this will be in the future for the disciples then, it is clear that the, the ultimate worldwide mission of Jesus, of Jesus' disciples, will be making disciples of all nations. The task is an outgrowth of their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, an outgrowth of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And both points are best summed up in the words of Matthew 28, 18-20 where Jesus gives us a command, words that will be familiar with most of you, words that are known as the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Besides being commanded by the Lord to go and make disciples, why else should we do it? What other factors would influence us? As if that wasn't enough in itself. Well, as, as Christians, surely we cannot help but be impacted by the beauty of the kingdom. As mentioned earlier, the good news being proclaimed, the diseases and sick healed, evil overcome the numerous miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And surely we cannot help but be impacted by the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of the King, he who says, let the little children come to me, he who has compassion on the leper, he who in his majesty calms a storm, he who has all wisdom and speaks with authority. And surely more than anything, we can't help but be impacted by the cross, the ultimate example. He who suffered from us. He suffered for us. He who took our place. He who just couldn't do any more. He who gave his life. Why should we do it? Should the question really be asked? Dare we ask it? Jesus should have made such an impact on our lives that we a lasting impact on our lives that we'd be wanting to share him eager to share him with others we've been shown grace especially when we consider where we are now with what we once were all through the shedded blood of Christ we should, shouldn't have any trouble talking to others about the things we love Matthew would later write in 6.22 for where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. And when Jesus comes again, surely we want to be found to be doing his will. How can we do it? 
well, we're powerless to do anything on our own, so we rest in God's power. We continue to abide in Christ, learning from his word, remaining in the gospel. By remembering that the gospel is the foundation of true life, eternal life. By remembering that his grace is not just for us, but for all sinners. By remembering that God doesn't reject people who ignore him. He doesn't write them off. And by remembering that being a follower of Jesus means being a recruiter of those people. Surely we want to witness the miracle of God bringing people to himself. As we've heard earlier, God is continually bringing his blessing, his promise to Abraham to fruition, bringing it into being, making it a reality. And how does he do it? He uses us to pass on the good news of salvation. He wants us to pass on the good news of salvation. And when we consider those things, they can only change our attitude and our immediacy of response. Just in closing, we've heard what the Lord Jesus calls us to do and we've heard of our possible fears, our doubts, our shortcomings in being able to carry out that task. However, at the end of Jesus' call, at the end of the Great Commission, as if knowing all our weaknesses, our frailties, our timidity, Jesus comforts us, assures us with these words, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let me pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. May we go from this place today with a new zest, a new zeal to tell others of the salvation found only in Christ. Prepare hearts to be ready and open to receive the good news so that they may also receive forgiveness for their sins and gain eternal life. Amen.